Welcome to The Mind Podium, where we talk about all things mental health. I'm your host, Piyali. Having lived with clinical depression and anxiety for over 23 years, I aim to reduce the shame, stigma, ignorance and apathy around mental illness, raise awareness around mental health and through meaningful, open conversations, give hope to those who are struggling. My guest today is Aparna Piramal Raje. Aparna is an alumnus of the prestigious Harvard Business School and University of Oxford. She is a columnist with Hindustan Times Mint, a visiting faculty at Anand National University in Ahmedabad, a public speaker and the author of the recently released Chemical Khichri, How I Hacked My Mental Health. Aparna, it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you. Welcome to the Mind Podium. Um, I must say that I have truly, truly enjoyed reading your book, Chemical Khichri, in which you chronicle your journey with uh, with bipolar disorder type one. Um, and, uh, you know, it took me exactly two days to finish the book. That's how much I've enjoyed reading it. So, Aparna, any mental illness, whether it's depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, is essentially a battle with your own mind, right? And you articulate that very beautifully in a section of your book called Me Versus Me. How difficult was it to explain to people that, uh, you know, while you may come across as fine, in fact, a lot of your colleagues have said that, you know, you you look fine and we would never have guessed that, you know, you were actually uh, battling bipolar. Uh, but how difficult was it to actually tell people around you, including your family members, that you were actually constantly battling with your own mind? Yeah, um, I think of it slightly different, Piali. Um, I think over time, I think of it less as a battle and more as something that I live with. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I live, um, uh, there are times when I'm absolutely at war with myself. And I think those are the times when I've had these manic episodes and um, there, you know, then, then I would refer to the civil war in me and to look at it more in terms of a battle. But I think generally um, what I've come to accept that I live with a mind that is volatile, that can have a life of its own. It needs care and attention. Um, but I also agree with you that it's hard for people to understand what exactly it takes to live with a mind like this, right? I have to take care of it, like almost like you might take care of a child. You have to give it attention, you know, it's or uh, and you, you have to make sure that it's um, really, really taken care of. So it's uh, there are ups and downs even on a daily basis, even when I'm in remission or I and, you know, there isn't that war going on. Um, I still have to, there are lots of ups and downs on a daily basis which need to be addressed. So it, I don't think it's very obvious to people even around me, you know, who I work with or even my family. Now my family probably know, but, you know, maybe my only, only some of my close friends know because I share it with them. So in Chemical Khichri, you write about uh, how it actually took you 10 years to, you know, uh, get proper help. Uh, and uh, you also mentioned that, you know, uh, a lot of it had to do with the fact that you didn't really want the label of being a bipolar, right? 
Do you think stigma plays a huge role in discouraging people from taking medication at the right time and reaching out for help? And I'm I'm asking this at a time when a very close friend of mine who um, is um, married to a person who's now been diagnosed with uh, depression and anxiety, and uh, you know he's not wanting to take any medication uh, despite uh, many conversations, despite uh, you know many many rounds of counseling, etc. He's just very averse to the idea of taking any sort of medication or therapy because he feels that there is no point in it, right? And he feels that it's anyway something that he has to live with for the rest of his life. So, um, you know, I just want to understand uh, the role of stigma uh, in uh, reaching out for help because there's actually data that proves that, you know, a lot of people do hesitate to reach out for help because of, of, of the stigma attached to it. And um, in your case, uh, you know, whether that was a factor, given the fact that you didn't really want that label of being a bipolar. Yeah, so there were actually many factors to it. It wasn't just one. Um, uh, we did start talk therapy very early on. Um, and uh, so it's not that we didn't take any help. We did go to a psychotherapist, uh, uh, you know, pretty early on when all the symptoms uh, started. Um, it's just that we were not very keen on medication for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that we couldn't find a psychiatrist that we liked. Um, second, there was some ambiguity about the diagnosis about whether I was a borderline case or whether I really needed medication or not. Um, third, there were some issues about, you know, taking lithium and having children, how that would affect it. Lithium is not perhaps a drug that is the easiest, I think, when you're trying to become pregnant or you're having, you think about having a family. So that was a consideration at that time. I don't know if things have changed. Um, so I think there were a number of factors that were not um, making us very inclined towards medication, but we were taking, uh, we were going to a talk therapist for a long time. Um, to answer your question about stigma, I think nobody, yeah, the label, the labels were difficult to digest at that time. I think it's much harder, easier now to kind of look at all these um, conditions and, you know, look at these um, uh, sort of diagnoses and accept that. Um, and in the end, when the diagnosis came, it was a relief for me. I think I accepted it. It was good to know that um, I had a normal personality, but there were chemical imbalances and to accept the dis difference between both of these two um, aspects of my life, really. Um, so, so I think that um, we are, I think, quite anti-medication, probably as a nation when it comes to these kind of conditions. We don't want to go to a psychiatrist. We don't want to, you know, even see a therapist. We don't want to take meds. So, yeah. You've also spoken about the importance of humor in dealing with a life-altering disease uh, such as uh, bipolar. Um, are there anecdotes or instances you would like to share on how humor played a big role in uh, helping you live with this? Well, I think the line that I uh, watched in a Swami Chinmayananda video where he said that life is a tragedy to those who feel and life is a comedy to those who think was one that has really stayed with me because, you know, as somebody who has a lot of emotions, who feels quite deeply and intensely, you know, you don't want to think of your life as a tragedy and you want to instead come from a place of intellect and uh, to rather than just operating from the mind alone and to, to be able to appreciate the difference between mind and intellect. Um, and when it, and then when you're coming from a place of intellect, you're thinking and, you know, you can look at humor, you're not attached to your emotions all the time. You can take a step back. And, and I, I see that 
in you know certain people around me that they they have a much more humorous approach to life and i think i am also like a playful and joyful person i fundamentally i like to think that i have a good sense of humor i can be quite irreverent um and so that's what i would like to maintain uh you know in the book uh you refer to uh the support that you've got from your immediate uh, family which is your parents your husband your in-laws many times through the book right in fact they have been your strongest pillars of support uh, but in many cases people are not that fortunate right uh, and in fact uh, in a lot of cases a lot of judgment actually comes from very close quarters um in fact uh, for somebody like me for instance my parents still even after me having lived with it uh, this uh, you know with clinical depression and anxiety for, for 23 years they still sometimes ask me why i can't alter my negative thinking patterns right um what is your advice to mentally ill people who are struggling to make their families understand the battles that they are fighting with their uh, with their own minds yeah um, i also want to acknowledge very much the role of my sister to whom the book is dedicated and my mother um, uh, both of whom have been real pillars in helping me with this condition um i think to answer your question i think mental health professionals can play a really important role here in helping families to understand what the condition is what the illness is and what the impact of the diagnosis is how does one do treatment how does one take care of it how does one prevent it what the triggers are i think that's really the role of the mental health professional to do that and i think my first psychiatrist very much did that with the family um my husband and i used to see him jointly and he would always get a few minutes with him afterwards and talk to him about it um and um, similarly our therapist also played quite an important role um in 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 you know getting us just habituated to this and helping us cope with it so i think that's a very important role and if if you don't have people you know mental health professionals that you can reach out to but there are of course many more resources now um then there are people in the extended family also who can play that role but i think it's really important to help to get the help of mental health professionals i don't know if you've tried that or if if to get your parents to see your point of view through the help yeah of absolutely i mean you know one obviously uh, does uh, uh, take them to uh, to therapy sessions etc but i think that uh, uh, you know like i always say that if you don't have the disease yourself you you are never really going to understand what what it is like to actually live with it because at the end of the day it is an invisible disease that people can't really see so um you know if you have uh, stomach pain you know people are going to be a lot more um uh, considerate or or worried for you than if you say that you know i'm just not feeling well mentally because that's just something that people still i think can't wrap their heads around right uh, and often you would have lots of people say things like oh why are you so negative why are you so pessimistic and things like that which are emotions that are you know and symptoms that are typically associated with this, these diseases so it's not really you uh, but it's the disease which is also something that you mentioned many times in the book right the distinction between you and your personality and and the disease and i will come to that uh, a little later uh but my I mean, next but question is, really sorry i'll just to interrupt but that is the purpose of this book also right is to raise awareness right. of these conditions and Absolutely. to help people to understand and it's very much aimed at people who are it's not just for individuals with a mental health condition it's also for people who have um uh who who are um 
in a caregiving, caregiving role, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, who are allies at work, who are friends. I mean, it's all for it's for all of us really, because all of us play that role for somebody or the other. I mean, I today have a mental health condition, but I'm also a primary caregiver to my family, and you know, I'm looking after their mental well well-being and their wellness and their mental health. So you know, I'm, we we are all recipients and we are um, givers both. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I think yeah. it is for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about writing and your love for it. Um, I mean, obviously, you do that um, uh, as a, for, for a living as well for uh, for Mint, and you've been doing that for a very, very long time now. And uh, the book uh, is peppered with uh, beautiful poetry, um, right? And um, some of those are, uh, I mean, absolutely uh, beautifully written. And one is, uh, do talk to me about... Um, how you motivate yourself to write because you have mentioned that you know you resort to writing to calm down your racing mind uh, what i want to understand is how do you uh, you know uh, push yourself to write uh, when you're in the throes of depression when you know it it gets difficult to even get off the bed sometimes um, uh, how do you really push yourself to write and inspire yourself to write and do something that brings you real joy well, I think it is much harder to write when one is depressed, when I'm depressed. I think that a lot of my writing happens when I'm feeling more peaceful. Of course, a lot of my writing happens when I'm manic, but that's pretty different kind of writing. It's not the sort of stuff that is necessarily worth publishing or it's it's different. It's just not, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's more fictional based. Um, but um, I think that this, uh, I think to answer your question is how do you, do things that you know make you feel joyful when you're depressed. Uh, I used to have what I call a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, when I was at business school and I was quite uh, unhappy at that point. Um, so I would do things that would give me joy. Small things. It could be going for a yoga class, going for a creative writing class, or going for a bike ride by the river, or whatever those things were. And I would reflect on these little activities that I did every day before going to bed. And I would think of the joy that they brought me. Uh, and it's a virtuous cycle because when you start thinking of these things, you start doing more and more of these things that, you know, will give you joy every day. And by the time before you know it, you're actually joyful because you're doing all these things that you like doing. And you take joy in the everyday. It doesn't have to be a big, uh, big thing. You just things that you really enjoy doing and that make you happy, small things um, that 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 give you. So I I found that something that, like helped me a lot to get out of bed when when I was unhappy. Moving on to the next question, um, which I did touch upon earlier as well, and you know, I I, I talked about how you mentioned in the book that um, uh, it took you many years to actually understand that there is a difference between personality and illness, uh, and between who you are as a person and what the illness makes you from time to time, right? Now, this is very critical to understand, both for the caregiver as well as the person that is suffering. So, for example, in my case, you know, throughout my life, I've actually struggled with like, you know, labels like, oh, she's she's quite difficult or she's quite rude or she's unsocial. She doesn't mingle. She's not accessible. She doesn't talk to people. Some people have called me snooty as well misunderstanding the fact that I, I might want to be left alone, you know, from time to time. Uh, people think I maintain a distance. So there are all kinds of labels that people have generously given me over the over the years. 
Um, and these labels have come from also people in the family and at work, you know, people that uh, you sort of interact with, with on, a, on, a, on a daily basis, right? Now, when you're already battling a monster, um, the last thing that you want is also uncharitable comments about, you know, why you are the way you are and, and needless judgment, right? Um, unfortunately, though, people equate the symptoms of the illness with who you are. What's your advice on navigating this very tricky situation? Well, I think you need to explain it to people around you, you know, and I, and I think it's difficult for people to understand and they might jump to conclusions. Um, I think, for example, people in my building um, might think that I'm unsociable because, you know, I like to walk by myself when we when I go downstairs for a walk in, in the building. Um, normally, a lot of people are walking in groups and I like to always walk by myself and have my music on. And it's the time when I use to kind of just clear my thoughts and, you know, kind of switch off from my day. And it's a really self-regulatory mechanism for me. Um, but over time, they've come to understand that. And I think this book, for example, helps them understand me a lot better. I'm not saying you necessarily have to write a book and explain that to your colleagues, but you can certainly have conversations with them about what what is that what exactly is going on with you and why their comments might be hurtful to you and why that's not exactly the image that you would want to project but you know what is that what how how your illness makes you different from them and how they can come to embrace that difference and not be judgmental so i think it's important for the person who is going through this to have that conversation um, and explain it and, you know, and do that in a way that's helpful. Now, not everybody may be able to do that, but I, I certainly think that, you know, if you kind of reflected on it as much as you have, you, you would be able to do that, so. Great. Um, people with mental illness often uh, hesitate to have children. Uh, there are many cases where, you know, they um, they express this hesitation mainly because uh, they're aware of the fact that, uh, you know, any kind of mental illness is also genetic to a large extent. And they're very afraid of, you know, passing on that gene to their, uh, to their children. Um, in your case, you have touched upon this briefly in the book, and you 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 also said that you know a lot of people told you how uh, having children was completely out of the question for you, right? Um, and yet here you are bringing up two beautiful boys and really enjoying motherhood. Um, and um, while I'm sure that motherhood has not been easy, in any case, motherhood is not easy, and particularly if you are living with a condition like this, it it's bound to be quite challenging. What would be your message to neurodiverse people who shy away from having children because of their illness? So I had my children before I got officially diagnosed, um, before we kind of really, you know, accepted that I was bipolar. But I think I would probably have gone ahead and had them anyway. Now, what I know is to is that the chances of them developing or inheriting a mental health condition, rather inheriting one, is uh, they have a higher probability than the average population, but it's still a pretty low probability. It's not necessarily a very high one. And I think that the way I would like to equip them to deal with this condition if they are triggered or if they do develop it is is to to have to be resilient, right? And to um, to be able to tackle their vulnerabilities, which is something I think they would want to deal with in any case to manage life. Um, and everything that my life might throw at them. So I think that having to be able to be resilient 
um, to be to tackling you know setbacks in life, to tackle failures in life, to tackle all of these challenges that a mental health condition represents and anything else that might come that way. That's partly what my responsibility as a parent is to, to bring them up in that way. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily that I've succeeded, but but that is the attempt. So I think what I would tell people is that I don't think the chances it is. It's not a given that your children will inherit your condition, certainly. Um, and there are ways to tackle it. I think that's that's wonderful advice uh, um, on 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 motherhood, on uh, on making choices in life, essentially, right? Uh, in your case, uh, sharing your mental health condition with your then boss, uh, Seema Chaudhary of Mint, almost proved to be a, a game changer. And you've talked about that in the book. You've talked about that on social media as well. Um, and that actually resulted in the both of you becoming great friends, although initially you did have apprehension around it, right? What would be some of your tips to those who want to broach this topic at work, you know, with their bosses or colleagues, whatever the case may be? And equally, what advice would you like to give to bosses and colleagues on how to best receive this information and reflect on it and react to this? Um, given the fact that, you know, discrimination around, uh, you know, mentally ill people is very high and that is a reality. And I think, uh, you know, one one has faced that uh, in, in many organizations. And one of the reasons why people hesitate to actually talk about their mental illness at work is because of this fear of being discriminated, because there is this uh, this this sort of idea that, you know, if I if I open up about my condition, I may not be given the right responsibilities or I may be judged in a certain manner. I may be looked at in a certain manner or I may even have to hear things like, oh, she did this because she is depressed. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I given the fact that you did um, uh, have a great experience when you uh, shared this with your boss, um, I would uh, request you to share some tips on how do you broach this topic with bosses, with colleagues, people at work. Thank you. Um, I think that's a great question um, because I really think workplaces are a game changer. Um, I, I, I wanted to share one point was that I kind of didn't have an option when I had to discuss it with Seema because, you know, I was so behind on my deadlines and I, I was kind of disappointing not one but four editors at the same time because I had taken on so many projects and all of them were kind of imploding to some extent. And so there was really no choice in the matter that I had to really discuss my performance and discuss my issues with her. Um, but she was very accommodating as um, we, you know, you highlighted. Um, so I would say the tips for anybody who is listening to this is really, I think um, you should specify what support you need. Um, so, for example, if you need a longer time to complete a project, you need some, you know, concessions, let's call them that, or you need you need a greater bandwidth to finish whatever project you're working on. You must specify that so, you know, so that the organization can really help in trying to accommodate you and it becomes easier. It's not it's not, you know, you can't expect them to know what's going on inside your mind and what you need. So if stress deadline related stress was a trigger for me, I would have to share that with my editor because after all, I'm in a newsroom, so then it's fulfilled with deadlines, right? So um, it's important for the person to specify what support they need. Now for bosses, I think the idea is to really be an ally 
Okay, and if you have to be an ally, the first thing is not to be judgmental. You know, so you could say things like, thank you for sharing this with me. Thank you for trusting me with this information. How can I help? Okay, what is the kind of support you need? Now, if they need specific support in terms of going to a counselor or going to a therapist or, you know, going to that to that level, then help them even with that if they're not able to find that, which I know Mint as a newsroom has, has done that for some of its people. Um, I think keep the realization that with mental health conditions, very often they come and they go. It's not like a permanent state of affairs. Um, I, I don't know what your condition is like, but certainly with me, there are times when it's better and there are times when it's worse. Um, and I think it's it's important for the organization to recognize that and find the right fit. Um, that's the other point that's very relevant that, you know, if, if given given my condition, it didn't make sense for me to be in a news kind of situation, but it made sense for me to be in a features situation where the deadlines were, you know, a lot more open and a lot more flexible. So and and I have also not taken on work when I thought that, you know, it would become too stressful for me or I wouldn't be able to keep up with the deadline pressure. So even when I think it would have helped me in my in my career or in my, you know, in my resume, perhaps. So I think it's important to have these honest conversations to to understand what you can and can't do, what you would like, what support you would like. And for, for bosses, as I said, you know, suspend judgment and realize that if you actually support this person, they can go on to deliver at a much higher level, be more effective. Exactly. You know, since since I had this conversation with Seema, I went on to do a book. Um, I've written over a hundred columns featuring CEOs. I've brought those voices into the newspaper. Um, I've written for practically every senior editor in the Mint. Um, and I continue to do my job and and they they you know and it's worked out for all of us. So I think that um, this one can actually be a high performing employee with a mental health condition if people know about it and they can work around it. So I think you have to start by trusting somebody and and you know, sharing your vulnerability with them. And and if they can't understand it, then there will be other places where you can have that conversation. You know, I think that there are more options today. One thing we've seen after the pandemic with people not wanting to go back to work is that talent today actually has choices, right? In most, in most Absolutely. cases. Yeah. So yeah. you will definitely find people who are more open to this conversation. And I do see companies being more willing to, to take this into account just as they take into account other aspects of diversity and inclusion such as gender or race or sexuality or any other aspect of you know diversity so yeah thank you so much Aparna for that and uh, I think the key takeaway is if you are a boss uh, and a colleague that's listening who is working with a neurodiverse person is that you need to be compassionate and uh, if you are the person who is uh, mentally ill, uh, you know, suffering from some kind of uh, a mental illness condition, I think, um, you know, it's all about being vulnerable, as uh, as Aparna mentioned. Um, taking off from the diversity, equity and inclusion point that you made, uh, you know, my question is really about whether workplaces today are conducive for uh, people that are mentally ill. Um, so a couple of months ago, I did a piece for CXO Outlook uh, where I wrote about how a mentally ill person views the modern day workplace, right? Uh, because let's face it, I mean, poor work-life balance, office politics, long working hours, they're all trigger factors for somebody who's mentally ill, 
right? Uh, most organizations even today have little to no understanding on how to make workplaces conducive for neurodiverse people. You touch upon that in your book. Um, and of course, you know, the book is now garnering praise from all quarters. Uh, there are many CXOs that are recommending it. Uh, and it is, a, you know, I think a very, very essential read in the discourse of mental health uh, for everybody, right? Um, uh, but uh, also, I mean, you know, highlighting the importance of, you know, looking at uh, people with mental illness, um uh, with without pity but but with compassion is something that you talk about in the in the book how do companies make themselves truly inclusive for neurodiverse people thank you and thank you for those kind words um i think that uh, it's important as you said very important to realize that there are workplace stressors and i think that you know somebody uh, somebody i quoted in the book she said that look if you tell people that you know i'm stressing you out with work and then i'm going to tell you to go and take a yoga class just to relax that is yeah. really not the solution you know? <laughs> yeah absolutely that's not i'm glad you said that yeah so that's not the problem. I mean, that doesn't solve the problem, right? So the ultimate issue is how do workplaces themselves not become stressful? Keeping in mind that, you know, you also live in a, companies are living in a world that is competitive, where performance is important, where they have to survive. And so there is always going to be this dichotomy between companies that want to live in a tough marketplace and, you know, where they are facing clients, they've, they've got customers, they've got competitors, and at the same time, they want to create an atmosphere that is supportive. So that tension, I think, has not been resolved by anyone, to my mind, and I, I don't know how easily that's going to be resolved. But I would say that if you want to make yourself inclusive, at least for neurodiverse people, and you want to take that seriously, then I think one of the things you could do is to make it easier for employees to share their stories. And the way to do that is for leaders themselves to be vulnerable. OK, and to, to talk about what their issues are, because frankly, everybody has some issue or the other. It may not be a mental health issue. It might be a physical health. Exactly. Issue, you yeah. know, so if they are themselves talking about whatever problem they're dealing with, um, if you know that makes it easier for the juniors to come out, you can't expect the juniors to come out and the seniors are not talking about it. Um, then to have forums of peer support where they can really open up and, you know, and, and share their stories in a, in, a, in a supportive environment. And for managers to think of themselves as allies, we talk about that and they're really saying that I'm an ally to you and I'm helping you, you know, do this. Like, I think um, if, if, they, if they really see their employees and as, as a source of talent and, and, and realize that everybody has some issue or the other that they're dealing with, this is just one of them. Mental health is just one of them that, you know, somebody or the other may be dealing with. Then you, you just look at it as part of life, really, and not like something that's in a bucket of its own and saying, OK, let's find ways to work around it and let's collaborate together and um, and, and, and progress accordingly. Like so I think that's really important. So vulnerability again and, you know, uh, it's it's all about I think encouraging open conversations and it's about normalizing conversations around mental health is what I understand uh, from from what you said. In fact, uh, there are many companies in the West that are actually actively uh, encouraging uh, you know uh, employees to come and talk about their mental health uh, challenges. Uh, they're creating these forums where you know that is actually possible. I I, I hope that India Inc uh, catches up and you know we have such initi initiatives driven 
driven at um, at various companies. Um, can I just say one thing is that um, Piali, I'm actively interested in working with companies that want to pursue this path. So if there is anybody who's interested, who's listening to this, they're most welcome to reach out to me and find me easiest ways on social media. And, you know, I'd love to sort of work with them to to further this area. That is fantastic to know. I'm, I, I hope that, you know, there are people that uh, are listening uh, who would want to reach out to you. Um, to create a support system that is uh, that is more robust. Um, tied to this question, actually, is uh, is is another important question on whether you think that organizations today need to revisit performance appraisal processes for people that are living with a mental health condition, uh, because um, in in many cases a severe mental illness is actually considered a disability, right? Um, uh, and uh, the only difference is that it's an invisible di disability. So it's easy for people to actually forget that you're living with a disability and expect you to meet the same yardsticks of success um, that that you expect everybody else to do when uh, really your mind is not wired like everybody else's, right? Um, so what success looks like for somebody else um, may not actually be attainable to somebody who's fighting depression, for example, right? Um, and uh, therefore, is there a need to revisit, um, you know, uh, performance appraisals and uh, and and the entire um, sort of structure of how how we go about uh, appraising people? Yeah, so at a philosophical level, I would say, Piali, is that, you know, I think success is anything, in, in any case, something that should be defined on one's own terms. You know, I used to make myself really unhappy by going back to my Harvard Business School reunions and comparing myself with some of my classmates who were CEOs of companies or they were, you know, investors and they were earning millions of dollars and they were doing phenomenally well. And I just felt that I was barely earning anything at all and I'd hardly achieved anything in comparison. And I had to remind myself, you know, so much that, listen, I'm dealing with a lot, right? I've got this mental health condition. I've changed my career. I've, um, I'm raising a family. I'm doing so many other things which, you know, are not part of that resume. And it was, it's only when I started looking at my yardstick of success being internal rather than external that I started feeling a lot happier. And I think that's what allows me to even write this book, right? And it's, it's written uh, something that I wanted to do and it's not something necessarily that I did just to make other people happy. Um, although I, does, I do hope it helps people. But coming back, so I think for companies and, and for individuals, I think one has to redefine what success means for, 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 for each person. You know, and it could look different from somebody, yes, with a with a who doesn't have a mental health condition, and um, it's very that's why it's really important to find the right fit, because if there's a right fit between what you can contribute to the organization and what um, what the organization values, and if those if there's an alignment of that, then I think it's easier to be successful in that role. Right. Um, for me, as I said, you know, I had to come up with this construct of playing opposite handed, right? Playing with my other hand yeah. and being, playing a little bit slower and not playing as fast as uh, I would normally because playing playing with my normal hand was getting me into trouble. But playing with my opposite hand would slow me down a little bit and actually make me more successful in the long run. So I think that it's uh, I think it's really important to to 
to take a longer view and to say that you may not achieve everything in the same time frame that somebody else who doesn't have this condition. But if you work at it consistently and if there's a good fit between what you want to do and what the organization wants and you do it consistently, actually you can have incredible gains, right? So I, like I said, I wanted to do this book seven years ago. Um, I kept having mood swings and I wasn't able to do it. But today, I think when I you know, finally got into a space where I was able to write it and I focused on it, the lockdown happened. It was it was it, it actually was helpful for me in terms of being more disciplined. I've come out with something which I think is going to be helpful to people, right? And which which seven years ago I was not in a position to do. So I think it's just a question of being very consistent, maybe working sm slower than other people, but having the gains and looking at success differently. I think that is really an important message that I would love to share. And is there any onus on, on the organization? Of course, I think it's important. It's a, it's a joint conversation. It's a mutual conversation about what is the right fit between what the organization needs and what uh, and what the what the employee can contribute. You know what is what what is it what is feasible for the employee to contribute and what works for the organization and just having the patience to deal with that right and to say that essentially i think you can achieve a lot you can be high performing you can be high functioning it might just take you a little bit longer you know and and that's really the message that has you know worked for me in my experience if I, for example, if I need to write up a series of stories, my editor tells me to do it in one week, I'll tell him, no, I need two weeks or three weeks. You just need to give me a little bit of extra time. But the content that I produce will be just as good or even better. But because I've had that extra time and I need it. So it's about the organization having that patience and realizing that there's a good person here. We don't want to lose that person, but we need to also adjust into the way that person works. And I think in today's day and age, organizations are probably willing to have that conversation because talent is hard to find. Absolutely. Can't can't deny that at all. Um, moving on, um, you talk a lot about spirituality um, and a lot of the difference uh, between the mind and the intellect in the book, right? Uh, spirituality certainly, you know, is something that does center us and make us feel more uh, connected with our with our inner selves, uh, as well as the world that we live in. But what if one is not spiritually inclined? Uh, what is their ammunition to battle a disease like this? So I think one can look at spirituality as just a tool and a technique to have a conversation with oneself, you know, to really understand, let's say, the triggers of why uh, a certain mental health condition becomes better or worse. And spirituality has been many things for me, but it, it certainly has been that. It's, a, it's been a way that I can have a conversation. Now, if you're not inclined, then you can use journaling as a, as a technique to have that conversation with yourself. You can use you know, other forms of therapy to have that conversation with yourself. So I think what, what I'm trying to really understand is that you need to sit down and reflect as to why are these things happening? What really are the triggers? What are the what are the deeper explanations? And you know, things like what is what is happiness? What is success? What is identity? What is meaning? What is purpose? What is dharma? These are questions that, you know, philosophical questions and really the meaning of life that 
philosophers have contemplated for years now you don't need yeah. to re- you don't need to read a religious book or a spiritual book to understand they are obviously people have a very wise you know the, the those books represent you know centuries of wisdom so you can access that if you want to if you don't want to access it there are other ways of accessing it but what i'm trying to say is that i think it's important to dwell on these if you want to go deeper into understanding a, a brain health issue and you don't want to just leave it as saying um it's a brain health issue you know because the way i look at it is there are psychological triggers and then there are chemical imbalances there are psychological triggers that lead to chemical imbalances so the it's very important to understand what those psychological triggers are and the best person to do that is you because you know yourself better than anyone else you know couldn't couldn't agree more um and finally you know uh, my last question in in this uh, section of the podcast is um when you go through mental illness um, of any kind and if you've actually lived with it for a long time it does take a lot away from you right uh, there there there's no denying that but the book actually ends with a wonderful letter from one of your childhood friends hetal set um who um, actually calls bipolar or any other mental health disorder a guru um and she says that you know it is the guru who guides you through your life and you surrender to the guru right um this is a very interesting way of looking at the disease um and therefore the question that i want to ask is what has the disease given you a lot of inner illumination i don't think i would have examined my life in this way um had it not been for my condition so it has really given me a lot of illumination thank you for sharing that uh, aparna with us um time for take five with piali which are you know quick um, short questions uh, a book on mental health that you would like to recommend to listeners so i like strictly bipolar um it's not the it's a it's a short read it's not the easiest of reads but it really gives great insight into this condition all right uh, complete the sentence mental illness is different from your personality fantastic uh, what is the one thing that you should not say to someone fighting a mental illness pull yourself together and cheer up thank you for saying that uh your recipe for self care music walks and the occasional massage wonderful and finally a message to those that are suffering from a mental illness it is possible to have a mental health condition and live the life you want to lead thank you so much uh this has been a very very special conversation uh, aparna and thank you so much for making the time for it but most importantly thank you so much for writing chemical kitri because it's a book that i think uh, we waited for a long time uh, to come and i'm just so glad that somebody had the the honesty the intent and uh, you know the purity of heart to to write a, a a wonderful book like chemical kitchery i mean i can't recommend this book enough to everybody uh, whether or not you've ever experienced mental illness uh, whether or not you've been in touch with somebody who's who are who's mentally ill but it's a book that everyone in society must must read because it's a very very important piece of work and um, yes my best wishes to to the book to you and um, 
here's to um, normalizing conversations around mental illness and uh, empowering people that are living with this condition to come out and share their stories of, of courage and fortitude. Thank you so much, Piali, for all these kind words and thank you for having me on the show and for such a great conversation. Thank you. Time for a mental health, did you know? Did you know that Mental Health Awareness Month has been recognized and celebrated since the year 1949? Former US President Barack Obama signed a proclamation confirming May as National Mental Health Awareness Month in 2013. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Mind Podium. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please do subscribe to The Mind Podium and click on the bell icon. Also, share it with your family and friends. Together, we can normalize conversations around mental health. Catch you soon.